Hey everyone, I've had a bit of a break from podcasting as I've spent some time repositioning the business to serve our customers at home. Check it out if you want to stock up on healthier snacks, brainybox.com.au. For now, let's kick into this episode. Today's conversation is with Lisa Malloy. I met her through the She Mentors community, which is filled with women who support one another through mental hours. And on a side note, I have loved being part of this community, so you should really check it out if you're looking to be surrounded by women who want to lift each other up. I was really keen to get Lisa onto the podcast because I'm so interested in psychology, and Lisa is an organizational psychologist who has over 15 years of experience in this field, and as you'll see, is always on top of the latest research. I really think you'll find the concepts she discusses here fascinating. Becoming more aware of even a few of the theories that Lisa discusses will really help with navigating teams and people, and it will hopefully make you become more aware of your own drivers and values. As always, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hey everyone, and welcome to Behind the Bee Box. I'm your host, Sherry, and I'll be interviewing passionate, courageous people who love what they're doing and are on top of their game. I want to share their journeys, lessons, and tips with you. We also discuss different facets of workplace culture and leadership. Plus, we'll dive a little deeper into thought-provoking topics we think you'll love. I truly hope it makes a positive difference to your life, workplace, or business. Thanks for listening. love to know a little bit about what you were like as a kid. So were you mm. cool? Were you nerdy? Were you sporty? Oh, I think I was definitely nerdy. Um, I was the ducks all the way through school, you know, like ducks of every grade and ducks oh, of the school. And that, the kid like who used to help the other kids. Yes, the kid who used to help the other kids with their homework in class when I'd finished mine or helping them, you know, finish their work. <laughs> um I don't know. It's a funny question because you forget about this when you get older, don't you? But I sort of, thinking back on it, I can remember, I think I was a pretty curious kind of kid. I used to ask a lot of questions. And um, when I think about how that shaped me into being who I am, I actually do remember having this really interesting conversation with my mum when I was about eight or nine, where she was talking about how other people don't think like me. Because I was asking something about like, why would they do that, mum? I don't understand why they do that. And she shared just, I guess, some insights around, you know, not everybody thinks exactly like you. And sometimes people think like this or this. And I remember thinking, oh, I'm kind of getting it at that age. It's yeah, funny. It's already starting to empathise yeah, with other people. Yeah, I think, well, and I was just curious, I think, about why people did things. I couldn't understand why people would behave in ways that weren't very nice or, yeah. And my daughter does it too at her age. She asked the same sorts of questions, actually. It's oh, like wow. I'm reliving that conversation with her. Oh, so, yeah. Wow. And I was always pretty confident as well, I guess, as a kid. I used to, um, you know, get up and do the talks in class and, I don't know, just be confident. I'd always talk to anybody. We'd go camping and I'd make friends with, with all the kids, you know, in the park and my brother would tag along, <laughs> that kind oh. of thing. So was yeah. there anyone in your family who was a psychologist or was there any of that influence around you at all? No, not at all. No, my mum worked in an office. My dad was a police officer. Um, no, my, you know, grandparents, my, I guess my grandmother didn't work. My grandpa was an engineer. So, no, I think I was the first sort of people person, if you like, you know, in terms of the work that I do compared to others. Yeah. But not really. So, uh, so it was obviously your curious curiosity around people. 
that drew you to what you're doing today, mm-hmm. which is organisational psychology. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about what that actually means to someone who has no idea? Yeah, and it's a good question because often if I say organisational psychology, people kind of glaze over and they don't really know <laughs> what it means. Or sometimes they think I help people be more organised at work. It's <laughs> not at all the case. Um, so I guess the way I often try to describe it is it's anything to do with workplace behaviour, I suppose. And um, it's almost like applying the knowledge and the science and the research findings, so on, uh, from psychology in terms of just, you know, human behaviour in a working environment to improve performance or productivity or um, culture capability, that kind of thing. So, yeah, and it's very broad, the role of an org psych. So it's also tricky to explain what we do because there's so much breadth in what we do and you tend to find that different psychs work in different spaces or sometimes all of them, (laughs) depending on on where they work. And I guess a lot of it would matter on what the actual organisation needs, depending on what you bring to the table as well. Yeah, absolutely. And there's almost three levels that a lot of org psychs work at. So individual, one-on-one. So when you're, you know, doing things like coaching or developing capability, for example, in leaders, then there's all the team level. So working with groups and teams and the dynamics there. And then the organisation level. So you'll have some psychs who focus more on the systems, if you like, like how to think about structuring roles and capabilities and so on to make the whole system work. And most of us work probably at all of those levels. Yeah, I was just about to ask, do you find yourself working across all levels or are people asking you for one over another? No, I've found myself working at all levels because I think you almost just do as a bit of a side effect of what you pick up along the way. So you might be working with an individual, but you'll automatically be thinking about the team that they're in or their contribution at the organisational level. Or similarly, you might get asked to work with a team, but then you need to dig into the individual stuff as well to help them understand one another more effectively. So it's sort of hard not to look at all of those pieces. Mm. And I think one of the roles we probably play is helping all of those individuals to think that way as well, to realise that it's you know, not just about them. <laughs> it's kind of the dynamic. Yeah. And how the environment they're in might be influencing their behaviour, for example, because a lot of people might not think about that. Yeah, so, and yeah. everything yeah, is so connected come at it in the workplace, isn't it? Oh, exactly. That's Everything's right. connected. So, yeah, yeah, like at a leadership level, stuff is going on. It's impacting people at an individual mm-hmm. level and vice versa. Yeah, well, and there's this really old formula, if you like. It's a bit geeky, right? But a psychological formula that this guy called Kurt Lewin came up with where he talks mm-hmm. about behaviour is a function of the person and their environment. So if you just think about that, all of our behaviour is driven by who we are and the environment in which we're operating. So that could be the team environment, it could be the culture of the organisation, it could be to do even with just the expectations around your role. So who you are and and what environment you're in will change how you respond. So I like sharing that, even though it's a a gig, it's expressed like an actual formula, like B equals FP times E. (laughs) Look, I love all the geeky stuff. I love all those those facts. And I think as you were were saying that, that obviously applies to when you're growing up as well. Oh, absolutely. You know, and that's, it's and that's part of guess, your whole life. That's right. And people, um, I think most people have heard of the nature-nurture style debate around, you know, who you are versus the environment that shapes you. And that's actually part of the conversation a lot of times when we're working in organisations too, because you are talking about temperament and personality and, you know, people have, it's, it's helping people to understand that, yeah, that pieces of who you are is going to shape how you show up at work and who other people are. So for leaders, for example, understanding that, 
in one another in their team can be really helpful. But then understanding the environment that they're creating with the combination of people, as well as the challenges, the constraints, you know, what's happening more broadly in that environment will impact those people's responses as well. Yeah, definitely. Especially the energy that the leader creates in in those different environments and Mm. different circumstances based on what's happening in the business. Um, I can definitely see how that trickles down and affects people. Oh, absolutely. um, So you mentioned that the work that you do, you're applying the research and the principles that you've learned while studying psychology. So I was really keen to dig a little deeper into the different areas of work that you actually do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd love to go down into each of each um, each of them with you um, and discuss discuss each of the scenarios that you may have come across with different teams and different people. Mm-hmm. So the first one that I have down here is in terms of the psychological research and principles that you apply when it comes to health and well-being of the workforce. Uh, mm-hmm. What are some of the considerations or what? what do you discuss or what would you implement with people? Mm. And actually, I noticed how you said um, the sorts of things that you study and learn as a psychologist. And one thing I would say is I'm always learning because the research is just going and going. And if I think about how long I've been practising, so much has changed in terms of what we know now about humans, I guess. And part of that's been because there's been a big rise in positive psychology, which I'll come back to in a moment because that's part of the answer to that question. But also neuroscience, like we were able to see more about what happens in tired brains now when people are thinking certain ways or responding to certain things. And it's just added so much depth to how you teach people about people, if that makes sense. So I love sharing all that stuff. I'm a bit of a geek. Yeah, can you share some of that that neuroscience research? I'm super interested in that stuff. Well, we know, we know a lot more now around, for example, and this probably speaks to some of your, the areas that you want to dig into actually around, um, for example, the, the things that trigger us to feel safe or not safe in a non-conscious kind of way. So, you know, to make a long story short, back in the caveman days, we had lots of threats coming at us. You know, it was hard for us to survive. We could get eaten. We could get excluded from the tribe and starved, you know, that kind of thing. And our brains are still wired to respond in the same way as those times, even though the threats don't exist anymore. So we know, for example, that our brains are very much wired to look for threats, to kind of scan our environment for for threats to safety. So anything that poses a threat. And our brain takes in something like 40,000 pieces of information per second. And we're conscious of about 40 of them, 40. (laughs) So sometimes in workshops, I'll say to people, so I'd just like you to wiggle your big toe. It's like you just kicked another piece of information out of your brain because you just can't be conscious of all of those things. And so there's some great research around, for example, the what's called the SCARF model that was popularised by David Rock, who runs the Neuroleadership Institute. But there's a lot more research behind that as well that you know has been developed over sort of 20 years or so around some of those drivers, some of those things that we know trigger us in the social environment of life and work to feel safe or, or feel like we need to sort of flee. So almost triggering that fight or flight versus feeling comfortable. So some of those things, and it's back to that well-being question, if I was to link it back to that, is, um, for example, feeling a good sense of relatedness and connectedness to other people. So that whole bias we have without even realising where we immediately judge is somebody is somebody sort of in our in-group or our out-group. Can we trust this person? Can we can't trust this person? Is it friend or is it foe? Like we do that in a split second without even thinking about it. 
Um, certainty is another one. So to see in the scarf model, we need to have certainty. Our brains like to know what's going to happen next. So if you think about um, things like redundancies and restructures, that really plays into account there. People are walking around in a state of ambiguity for a very, very long time. And from a wellbeing perspective, that can really impact. So, I mean, I can talk more if you like, but I'll pause there. No, no, <laughs> that, was, some, that was so good. Oh, um, it's, it's really insightful, I guess, when you... I teach this a lot to clients in coaching, in workshops, just to help people think about, well, when I'm interacting with someone, am I essentially triggering a safe response making them feel safe and like they can trust me because it really plays into trust or is whatever i'm doing likely to be triggering off one of these sort of social drivers and everybody's drivers are different but yeah. we all kind of humans have the same ones so as yeah definitely and as you were talking i was thinking well what can people do to trigger the right responses or the the responses that make people feel like they're in a safe environment rather than mm. triggering off, okay, this person uh, is someone I can't trust or I don't connect with this person. Um, yes. Obviously, it's, it's going to be, I'm assuming it's going to be a lot more complex than like yes. a one-line <laughs> answer because it probably has to do with that person's background and what they've experienced before with others. But I was keen to hear your thoughts on, you know, what are some of the things that people can do to make others feel like they're in a safe environment? Mm. Well, and I think... The big answer to all these questions is often around developing an understanding of people, I guess. You know, that that's one of the things that I do work a lot with one-on-one -on -one leaders around understanding your people or who you're working with, um, stakeholders, anyone. So what is it that you can figure out about by observing, say, by watching someone's reactions, by noticing when you do something, how they respond, what can you learn about them? Or by just flat out asking them questions <laughs> so that yes. you understand a little bit more. Um, so I think it's a combination between that and being aware of your own impact. So there's actually some really interesting um, research that came out probably last year, I think it was. There's a great book by this lady called Tasha Urich who wrote about self-awareness. And self-awareness to me is like the most fundamental part of being a good leader and I guess anything in the workplace, like being aware of what matters most to you and what triggers you off is also really important and then what would trigger other people off. So, so the short answer is I think being aware of how you're showing up and then how people are responding to you, but really through just observing. Like that's probably the, sounds really simple, but it's actually not because most people spend a lot of time in their own heads and thinking about what they're worried about or what they're going to say next rather than actually noticing and observing other people. And so in terms of that SCARF model, to give you an example, so the S stands for status. And so that's about people having a sense of sort of how they sit relative to others. So it might be power and hierarchy for some people, but quite often it's not. It might be um, your sense of status around being an expert and knowing lots of things or bringing lots of value to the organisation through your experience, that kind of thing. And so if you imagine that that is somebody's trigger and that is something that matters to people and they may not realise it, but you go into a conversation and you're telling them what to do, or you're, you know, cutting them down halfway through them sharing their ideas or, you know, them bringing their expertise into the room, then you might be triggering off that, that driver. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, you know, instead you could ask questions or really try to bring in their knowledge and expertise if you know that that matters to them. And unfortunately, I do have a lot of conversations with people where they're in very, very hierarchical organisations and status is quite important. Yeah. And once they learn to... Because it, because it's part of the culture, you know, not just the individuals, but it's part of the culture, and that status is what allows people to get things done. So, um, 
I've found myself working with a lot of coaching clients, just helping them to understand that as a driver and then think about how to navigate around that. Does that make sense? It makes Um, so much sense because I think it also um, plays into people's values as well. So mm. people, like you, you mentioned, respect. So it could be that people value respect so much and often they feel that that comes with the title. Um, mm. And so understanding that and playing into that is really, really important versus someone who might not care at all about status and that's respect. Right. Well, they might just exactly. care about just being the expert um, in their field and that's it. That's right, uh, because sorry, they, they have a lot of pride in that or, yeah, and I was having a conversation like this actually last week with a client where, where I shared this model and they worked out that a, a person they were, I guess, clashing with a little bit had a, more of a status driver around being the person who would fix everything and the person who mm-hmm. would save the day and, you know, was the one who could come in and do that and nobody else could. And they themselves also had quite a strong attachment to that sense of status around expertise and knowledge and what was the right solution from a very evidence-based perspective. So there was a little bit of an aha moment like, oh, no wonder why we're clashing because we both care about that and we're kind of butting heads around who's right, if you like, even though they were coming at it from very different perspectives. And actually, just to share the other the other letters, I guess, in that model, the C is certainty. So, you know, people need certainty, as I said. And if you think about how you might be impacting others in that space, you know, we've all had that situation where we've been in an organisation and there's some change or something's happening and we don't know what's going on. And what happens is that that lack of certainty just gets filled with people creating stories about what's happening. So rumours and, you know, hypotheses and speculation about what's happening. And that's because we need to have a sense of certainty as humans. Like we pretty much all need that. Some people are more comfortable with ambiguity than others. But for you as someone who, say, is a leader or is the person who has more of that knowledge, you know, you can tap into that by thinking, what can I tell this person or what can I share with my team around what is known and what is not known to give them enough certainty to be comfortable so they're not walking around feeling on guard the whole time. And that's a classic with something like restructures or even just change. There's a lot of things that could be communicated more around change but aren't or they're communicated once and they think, well, I've I've told them that and that's the end of it when really people don't quite understand so they're looking for more of that. Um, The other one that's really big in the research is in the SCARF model, it's the A for autonomy. And this is also featured in some of Dan Pink's work around motivation. People need to have a sense of control and agency over their own future. So when you take away that, when you micromanage, for example, as we've all experienced as well, (laughs) you know, you you demotivate people, you disengage them, you know, for some people that's way more important than others. But generally, I don't think I've met anyone who likes to be micromanaged or have that kind of power taken away over their decisions. And um, the R is the one that's around human connection, relatedness, so that in-group, out-group. So as you said earlier, sometimes people might not care about um, sort of status or being, you know, in a position of power. They may not care at all. So for me, relatedness is my biggest driver. But what really matters to them is feeling like a sense of belonging, a sense of comradeship, you know, team, being in it together. And without that, and you can imagine again how, sometimes people create a bit of competition or rivalry without meaning to through the way they set targets, the way they manage performance, the way they give feedback, you know, I see a lot of that as well. Then that would be setting off those little alarm bells for people who want more of that. That's so interesting. And the final one. Like I just, that that one, um, (laughs) 
the reason why that stood, like, stood out to me so much is because that's probably one of my high ones as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think as soon as you said, you know, those targets in the competition, I think often mm. in different teams, like if it's a sales team, for instance, there's so many people whose R would be really, really strong. They could be amazing salespeople because that R is so strong. But mm-hmm. once you put them in this team where it's a traditional kind of sales team, where you're focusing on targets, 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 and you're not speaking mm-hmm. about the customer or the service or anything else, those kind of people would really struggle in that kind of environment. Yeah. Um, and if yeah. you're not aware of that and you think that everyone thinks like you and, you know, they're more, more focused on the S or whatever it might be, they could really struggle. So, mm. yeah. And I do, you see that. I mean, we can, some of us can relate to it, but you do see that when you work with teams and groups and that they have different motivators in that sense. And a lot of, um, a lot of the organisations I've worked with that are more purpose-driven, that's a real piece for them. So, you know, they're not there for the money or for the status or the position. They're working somewhere where it's about creating good outcomes for the community or being part of a team or... You know, and it's always an interesting question to explore with people when they're looking to, say, do a career change and figure out what next as well, Not helping them to understand what matters most in that model, for example, from that perspective. Yeah. And but, I, I mean, I had that experience. Well. Sorry, Sherry. I had oh, that experience with the relatedness piece and I didn't even, I hadn't, I wasn't across this sort of understanding at that stage, but I was working in what was a very close-knit, connected supportive group and then the dynamics in that organization changed and it did get that the culture was more about each to their own you know the leadership was driving competitiveness trying to just get results for the business and I left I mean I didn't have a job to go to and I left because it just felt so wrong and so against who I was and I could see everybody's behavior changing in ways that they didn't like themselves you know yeah yeah yeah. it can be really powerful and without even realizing why you just feel like it's wrong you know yeah you and that's when you know it's, it goes against your values when you get that gut feeling and you're just like this doesn't feel good you know it's something deeper than mm. what's just on the surface yes which comes back to your point about values before as well because that's the other part I guess around knowing how to work with other people really effectively and you don't always see that you don't always get get that information you don't often sit down with someone and say so tell me what are your values yeah (laughs) even though I think that can be a really 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 great conversation for leaders to have with their teams as getting a part of getting to know them it's not always something that's put out there that explicitly is it in your day-to-day and I think you pay attention yeah I think it's because people um maybe it's like the language or they don't have the vocabulary to support what they value Mm. maybe or they just haven't thought in that way before yeah, um, I feel like people yeah. haven't thought about it a lot because when I've done, I've done a quite a bit of um, career development, I guess. Uh, it's not something I do a lot of now, but I guess where I always start now with individuals is what do they value and who they are and how they want to show up and who they want to be in a work environment because that helps me then to, help, I guess, guide them and steer them and coach them going forward. Um, but very, very often people have not thought about that question. They haven't sat yeah. down and worked it out and someone else is always able to kind of tease it out of them a little bit more effectively because it's hard to detach from that when it's in yourself yeah finding the words and things can be really yeah really tricky yeah I think it helps a lot when you've got someone else just to bounce off and to ask you the right questions Mm. because otherwise you can just get stuck in your head as well when it comes to these sort of yes absolutely Um, and so what was the f so yes I was going to say we haven't done the f the f (laughs) is fairness 
The F is fairness. So it's a sense of just fairness. And interestingly, it doesn't mean fairness just to yourself. It can mean fairness to others. So sometimes when I've worked with people where this is a really big driver, they'll feel really put out when they can see some injustice happening, say somewhere else in the team or the organisation or even with the customers or the community that they serve. So where there's just an imbalance of power. So, yeah, I've, you, can, I've you can see how I've they all play out, that. can't you? Yeah. Like when you yes. that, as you were saying that, I was like, yeah, I know a few people that just really care about that. Yeah. It's so and it's a big part. Yeah. And it's, it's a, so it's a great model. I mean, I end up, I find myself, funnily enough, teaching it a lot. And there is a variation on it called the safety model, which pretty much is a little bit more research-based, comes back to the same pieces, but the why in the safety model is you. So it's around personality and motives and all of those extra parts. So it's sort of, you know, here are these drivers that we know are pretty consistent for most people, but then there's also the element of who you are as a person. Yeah, which plays into that awareness piece. Exactly. But, you know, it it can go deeper than that. You can't really ever reduce people to a simple model or (laughs) to understand them. As that's well. so true yeah. and yeah I, yeah I've heard you like touch on that before people are complex there's many many things oh. going on obviously so I know and that's what's one of the things that's interesting but challenging about my job too because people are complex and so even as someone who's worked as a psych for a long time you still you're still always learning like and you still don't you never walk in and work with someone and find that whatever's happening for them is the same as somebody else you've worked with you know it's just yeah. never that black and white <laughs> yeah you never have the same day twice, basically. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. So, um, yes. And the second question I was going to ask was about um, helping with transitions. So, in terms of redundancies, roles, structural yeah. changes. And I know you touched on earlier that one of the biggest things is around certainty or providing as much clarity on a situation as possible. So, mm. in being able to identify what you can tell somebody versus what you are not allowed to share and giving them enough of a story to kind of mm. run with to keep them going. Would there be anything else that you would suggest in that type of transition in the workplace? Yeah, yeah, actually. And so I think I probably didn't answer your other question that well around wellbeing, by the way. So we'll come back to that because there's another great model that I'd share there just in terms of helping people understand. But um, yeah, redundancies, transitions, change. I mean, to me, there's more of that than there ever was before. Like it's always been something that's in organisations, but more so now because everything's so volatile all the time. Um, but yeah, I think something like the SCARF model, you can actually really see how that applies to, for example, redundancies, which is why sometimes I've helped individuals who've gone through that to understand this because they've lost their sense of status. They've lost their certainty. Yes. They've lost their autonomy because someone's made a decision for them. As, as same as restructures or change where people are impacted. They've yes. often lost their relatedness because they were part of a team or a group and had that shared identity and that's gone. And then the fairness piece, of course, because there's a lot of decisions being made and, you know, even people who don't experience a change that's going to impact them negatively can feel something we call survivor syndrome where they can feel how unfair it was for the others who went through that. So even a model like that is great in just understanding how people are going to respond. But um, I think the way I would what I would probably share, I suppose, is that it can be really helpful for, I guess, the leaders or the people who are making those changes to understand just how humans respond to change and uncertainty. You know, as you said, that providing too little uncertainty is going to make people feel on edge. It's going to make people feel insecure and worried. And really what I've seen is that's going to dominate everything in their everyday thinking because until they have that sense of sort of security and safety, 
it's just hard for them to focus on much of anything else. So sharing what you can is absolutely a big piece. And I guess the struggle for a lot of leaders is knowing what they can share and what they can't because they're often told they can share certain things or they can't. But most of them, if you dig deep, you can share something. So what can you share that's honest, that's open? Because that's the other piece. If you're not honest and open, people know and they pick it up and they very quickly detect that and then the trust goes down even more and it becomes a bigger issue. So what can you share to kind of create as much certainty as possible and, and I guess address those questions and concerns as much as possible? And then how can you provide, I guess, a really human-to-human -human support while people are going through that ambiguity by understanding what they might be feeling, what they might be thinking and, and just supporting? Because I guess mm. there's you know, a tendency I, for people to take a very hands-off approach because they don't know how to deal with the emotion or they're a bit scared of saying the wrong thing when often people just need to know that they've got some support. Yeah. And I think that you're right. And it just, it's as simple as just having conversations on an mm. ongoing basis and just having coffees with people and just listening to them. It might not be about you saying the right or wrong thing. It might just simply no. be about listening to what the other person has to stay, say yeah. and trying to empathize with them at some level and showing them that you understand and that, you know, you're in it together. Um, Absolutely. Well. And empathising, that's a good point too, because I think there's a big role in just listening, as you say, and just helping people to feel heard about whatever it is that's on their mind. Um, I think that's one of the biggest things that people need in any, well, in life and work <laughs> is to feel yeah. just valued and heard, you know. So, so yeah, I agree. There's a big role there. And there's some other, I guess I've taught a bit of change stuff in the past too. And there's there's quite a bit in your traditional management consulting sort of literature around change and the stages of change so the Cotter model is a really famous one around how to implement change and I think as a psychologist the role that we often play in that is helping to understand what the person the people part of that is so you know, can you speak about out, the Cotter model a little bit yeah it's pretty um it's pretty comprehensive there's some good articles and things out there but it, I guess it's around it's more oriented around how to create a platform for change as in help people understand that there is a need for change in the first place. And then some of the steps as an organisation that you would take to work through that. So, for example, um, finding some early adopters, you know, finding some people who are prepared to sort of sponsor and champion the change. Yeah, because they the change the champions. The change champions, that's right. Yeah. And, and um, creating a... Yeah, so kind of, I guess, identifying why the change is required, getting some people who buy into that and then helping them to you know, spread the message, if you like, and be the champions, the good old change champions. Um, having a clear vision about sort of why you're doing it and people underestimate that or they think that they just communicate it once and then everybody gets it. And really, that's not how it works when you, you know, work with the broader organisation. A lot of people don't get it in terms of their actual role and their day-to-day -day mm. and how that feeds in. So that's one thing I think around, I guess, Cotter would say that that that's a big gap a lot of the time that you communicate, here's where we want to go and here's why it matters once <laughs> and that's yes. it. Whereas it takes reinforcing and it takes an individual kind of approach and it takes understanding what people are concerned about and just, you know, ongoing, ongoing, ongoing communication, um, giving people, I guess, the autonomy to maybe implement the change how they want, that kind of thing. Um, and so it also talks around that, that model, I guess that process talks around things like creating short-term wins so that people can start to understand and buy into why it's worth committing to the change and then consolidating that and making it part of the new way of working rather than sort of just 
you know, doing, because we, we've all seen change initiatives fail, right? So yes. quite often there's a big flurry of activity and then it gets dropped off or people don't yeah. really get it and, you know. But it's a very um, process-driven approach, I suppose you could say, in terms of here are the steps that you need to take, whereas some of the other models that I've sort of put around that or taught around that or have, you know, facilitated, it's, again, around the people part of it. So there's another, um, there's another great model, I guess you could call it, around what's called the rooms of change so it's about the human experience as you go through change and again lots of leaders and people who are trying to facilitate that have a few aha moments when they learn about that so the theory and nobody knows really it didn't really come up in an organizational context it's come up in more of a counseling style kind of context or therapy yeah. context yeah. it's been used more in organizations and so the idea is that we all move through different rooms of change, if you like, and we flip back and forth between them depending on what's going on and knowing where people are can help you to know what to do next. So one of the room is the room of contentment where, you know, people are saying, well, I'm just fine the way it is. Nothing needs to change. Everything's hunky-dory. Why do we need to change? No, that everything's just fine. <laughs> well, then there's denial. Oh, Contentment okay. is I'm happy with where it is and I'm not going to bother looking at any other alternative. Denial is where it's, oh, this doesn't really matter to me. It's just not relevant to my job. I don't need to do anything differently. Yeah. yeah. And then often after denial, if people sort of realise or somewhere in there they move into what's called the room of confusion where it's like, okay, what are we supposed to be doing? I have no idea what's going on anymore. <laughs> they just yeah. lost. Yeah. So they might have started to understand that they need to change, change or make a change or do something differently, but they don't quite know how. And then the last one they call the room of renewal, which is where you actually accept it and you're kind of ready to go now. So it's yeah. interesting when you teach this and you ask people, where is your team now? And they'll be like, oh, well, you know, Joe and Sally are in this room and so-and-so's in this room and so-and-so's in this room. They're all over the place. And you're like, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Not everybody's going to be in the same space at the same time. So what do you need to do to move them forward? So if yeah, it's confusion, it's then what are they confused about? Or if it's denial, how do you create more urgency around what matters for them and why this will help them? Or Yeah, that, that makes so, yeah it makes so much sense. And <laughs> I think when you were saying that some of these theories they don't often get discovered in the workplace it's because well I think it's because it's all it's the same thing it's just life so yeah, it, yeah. it's everything that you're learning um about people and behavior it's in mm -hmm. life like it, it's going to show up everywhere including oh, at work exactly yeah. yeah which is why I think there has been more of a movement towards bringing your whole self to work I think people yeah. have started to realize that that kind of you know, and authenticity and all of those things, you are who you are and you bring your whole self to work. Yeah, so you absolutely. Can't, you know, you can't leave half your personality at home or you can't leave whatever's going on in your life at home as easily as, I guess, what was once expected. So Yeah, definitely. Yeah, totally agree. And I think most psychs play in that space, actually, that you are bringing in pieces from non-organizational psychology if you like because I use a little a few tools that I bring from more of a clinical angle even though I'm not a clinical psychologist I've learned them anyway because they're so useful in working with individuals yeah yeah absolutely I can imagine how great that would be having that knowledge in the back of your mind <clears throat> even if you aren't a trained clinical psychologist just knowing mm. some of these models that you've mentioned and understanding them goes such a long way mm. um, at work Mm -hmm. So do you actually, did you want to, um, cause I know you mentioned there was another point you wanted to talk about on wellbeing. 
yes. do you want to talk about that now or do you want to come back yeah to no no I think it's good to to touch on because I think it's influenced a lot of what I do so I'm not sure if you're aware of the positive psychology movement I'm guessing you are but that's, love all of that stuff yes yeah. <laughs> so that's been a really big I think shaping force in what organizational psychologists do actually over the last probably 10 years I'd say because I think it's really come forward in the last 10 years and so for people who don't know I guess it's the science around and the research that's been conducted around what makes people thrive and go from functioning if you like so being just everyday okay to really flourishing versus going from what psychology traditionally focused on which was what was wrong with people and how you fix them um, and so the, there's great, so much great work that's come out of that. And one of the big cornerstone pieces that you might have heard of as well is the PERMA model, which is, again, another sort of acronyms, lots of acronyms, um, because these are the, the factors, I suppose, that have been identified in terms of human flourishing. And a lot of that work has now been uh, translated across into work environments as well. So when you think about well-being, I think it's, I just think it's great to be thinking about how these factors would show up in a work environment rather than just in everyday life, but they kind of go across both. So have you heard of the permamodel? No, I was about to say, oh. I haven't. So I'm really keen to know oh, about it. Yeah. I know. I'm to keep throwing acronyms at you. Sorry. So great. You can Google most of these, by the way, and you do find some good information floating around out there. But where this came into play for me is I was quite interested in this and I sort of started learning and started learning. And actually I was going to go and do a diploma or a um, master's in applied positive psychology but one of my mentors talked me out of it and he said, you don't need another master's. You've already got one. I, he said, I challenge you to just learn what you can learn self-directed over the next year and then tell me if you think you need to go back and do a master's. So it I was like a good that. challenge. Yeah, yeah, it was a good challenge because I'm one of those people that always think, oh, I've got to have the accreditation. You've got to have the thing on the resume and otherwise people think I can't do it. Of course, um, with your personality just, uh, and how you yes. are. Like, yeah. Yep. Yeah, I know. And, you know, I always want to do things that are evidence-based and backed. And anyway, so um, so what I did is I learned a little bit about that model or that topic if you like and then I just dug in so all of these different things you can dig in way deeper and there's so much more behind it now mm -hmm. so the p is positive emotions so there's a great body of research around the influence that experiencing positive emotions and I don't mean things like just being really happy and cheerful they talk about them as genuine heartfelt positive emotions how that can impact your well-being so that's things like you know, joy and um, love and, you know, a whole lot of really positive emotions that we want to experience every day. So in a work environment, I mean, you can think about how culture impacts that, you know, the, the kind of, there's a little bit of science just too around the ratio of positive to negative emotions and how that can impact relationships, for example. So Barbara Fredrickson is a really great researcher in this space and she's done a lot of work around how you creating more positive moments of connection with other people can really boost relationships. So the way I've used this with clients, actually, like one leader I was working with was struggling to kind of connect with her team because they were so big. She'd expanded her team significantly and she had something like 12 people. Yeah. So we talked about how she could have more positive, constructive interactions with them just in the little moments that she kind of came Ooh. across them. Yeah. So walking down the hall, for example, instead of having small talk about how was your day or what did you do on the weekend, she would ask them about, oh, what are you working on at the moment? And then they'd tell her what they were working on and she would, you know, respond in a positive way to sort of oh that sounds really exciting and ask them more questions and get them to talk yeah. about what they're really passionate about so she was creating what what the literature calls 
a, um, they call it a moments of um, micro moments of positivity resonance. How's that for a geeky term? But it means I love that. Your, I'm all about the micro moments. Micro moments, yeah. yes, of positivity resonance, so that you're both feeling a positive emotion at the same time. And it even so plays nice. out in things like you know you imagine teams and groups where they'll like laugh over something together, watch a funny video, or those are creating oh, those moments. Yes, those are yes. the little moments of positivity that people are sharing with one another. So that's where the P kind of really plays out in a work environment. Yeah. And the other interesting thing about that is because we're so wired as humans, again, from a brain-based perspective to kind of look for the negative, we have what we call a negativity bias where we're looking for the threats and looking for the bad things without even realising it, that sometimes you have to work harder to create those positive moments because they're not remembered as easily. We remember them. So, you know, another great sense. example. We all remember the one feedback or improvement piece we get in our performance review. Not all the good things that are said. <laughs> We're so wired to. Isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. So, yeah. And we all remember the time that somebody made us feel bad versus when somebody, the same person might have made us feel good a lot of those times. So that yes. emotional piece really kind of kicks in. So the E is engagement which really plays into a lot of the strengths work that's being done these days, which you may have come across yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, so it's also about being in flow, I guess, in, in a work environment. So feeling engaged and interested and enjoying what you're doing. So I really um, like that one because a lot of people um, often at work, you're always trying to fix what you're not mm, the best at, or you're absolutely. always trying to improve on thing on skills that, um, a weaker compared to your strengths but the, the reason why I really like this one is because you get to hone in on what you're really really good at and it makes yeah. you feel good because you can just do it really really well and help people with your strengths absolutely and there's a whole body of literature behind that too so you probably know there's the Gallup strengths profile and there's a few yeah. other the via strengths and I use one called the strengths profiler um, there's a whole body of research around how using your strengths increases performance, engagement, even right down to customer satisfaction and those kind of more um, business-oriented outcomes, if you like. So because people are operating at their best, like it's as simple as that. And a strength, I always really like defining what a strength is because sometimes people think that it's a strength, but it's actually what we might call a learned behaviour, right? So a strength is something that you're good at that you do often and most importantly energizes you. So you do it and you feel energized as compared to what you could have is a learned behavior where you do it often, maybe because you have to, or it's part of your role or um, you're good at it because you've learned how to do it well, but it drains you. Yeah, <laughs> That is not so, a strength. And sometimes when people realize that difference, they're like, oh. That's, that, that's a good way to um, define it because there are so many things that people are good at, but they don't love doing. doesn't mean that they have to focus yes. on those things. Yeah. And they might've loved doing them once, but they don't anymore. And that's the other part. Sometimes you could be learning something and you could really enjoy it. And then over time it shifts and it's just not something that you're passionate about anymore. So it's yeah. being a, a true strength in that sort of energetic way of looking at it. Yeah. And, um, I, yeah. and it's so yeah. important for people to know that that's okay, that that happens. And yeah. It's just a that's it. Cycle. Yeah. No, that's it. And I often use the example for me, like being detail oriented. So I'm really detail oriented and I can't stand having like a slide at a workshop that's got one thing wrong in it or <laughs> you know, anything that's not like perfect. It bugs the life out of me, yeah. but I hate doing the details and I'm good at spotting it. So I easily pick up oh. those sorts of things if I was reading something or 
but I don't like doing it. And I can even remember one time I've got a virtual assistant and if I can get things to him to do in time, he'll do all that for me. He'll format things, he'll like yes. fix up all the tweaks. And I can remember one time I had to do a presentation and I couldn't get it to him in time because he's in a different time zone. And I spent about two hours, you know, moving things around on the slide and lining everything up and doing all of those things. And then I got up and I remember getting up from my chair and just actually going, oh, like, I'm so drained. You know that feeling you get? Yeah. You think, oh, you my God, your... I'm never going to get that two hours back. Did you get your grid lines up? Did you make sure you have your grid lines oh, in yeah, the background? Oh, yeah, and I'm everything. all of that. You know, when you move the things around, you can see if it lines. Yeah, yep, yeah good, that, good. That, that's how I am and how I want everything to be. And it's funny because I've worked with other people who are way less detail-oriented and we've co-facilitated or run things together. And I'll just be the one fixing all the things because I yep. can't stand it. But that is, so that's a learned behavior. That is not a strength. It is a learned behavior. Absolutely. Yeah. Whereas, you know, the other often, because I'm often sharing these examples to illustrate it. The other example I would give is something like facilitating. So being up in front of a room and facilitating good conversations, I'll come out of a day like that and I'll be physically exhausted because you just switched on the whole time or debriefing, you know, working with one-on-one all day. You're absolutely exhausted for the physically, but I'll be buzzing like emotionally and energetically. I'll be like, feeling really excited and enthused so it's a funny feeling that's a know? strength yeah yes that's definitely a strength in that I would not want to not do it as well if I wasn't yeah. doing that I would start to crave it so yeah so yeah so I guess that's the um just back to the perma model that's the yeah the that's e the e and yeah and there's also a lot of science that a lot of people have heard of these days around the idea of flow but you know getting into the zone being able to carve out time to really do deep work and, and get into that stuff that you really enjoy. And I think that's important in organisations too because there's so little opportunity for that in the way that some workplaces are set up now where there's no quiet space or there's lots of interruptions. Interruptions is a big one. Yeah. <laughs> lots of always switched on, Slack stuff popping up and emails and all the many, many, many things that stop us being able to do deep work. That's also a part of that being engaged, you know, having time yeah. to do I think a lot of workplaces now have different pockets on the floor for deep work, like focus mm. zones or library zones where it's, you can't, you can't go in with your phone. There's like no distractions in there. So mm. those kind of setups are good. Um, otherwise I think, and I'd love your thoughts as well. A good way to actually discuss that with, is through and with your team. So, mm-hmm. you know, the expectation is when I'm doing this, I can't be interrupted because I really need to yeah, get this done in time or whatever it might be and understand what it looks like for your team as well so you're not interrupting them when they're in that deep flow. Yeah, that's it. Well, that's one of the um, strategies and you've probably read that book, Indistractable, where they talk about having a little sign, for example, that you put on your computer oh, that says, I ha- I'm indistractable. Oh, <laughs> but I like yeah. that. I'm trying to remember his last name. His name's Neil, I-L or something. I'd have to look it up. I can send you a link if you like, but... It's a book called Indistractable and it's about that creating that focus and learning to kind of, but one of the strategies that he talks about is in the back of the book, there's actually a fold out thing that you can tear out and fold over and pop on top of your computer or at your workspace that says, I'm indistractable right now. Please don't interrupt me basically to let people know. But it's funny you say a lot of workplaces have that, but I don't think they do yet. A lot of the workplaces that I go into don't. I think some of the more modern companies that have redesigned their offices or have started more recently have got that because they realise how important that is, especially when it's a entrepreneurial type venture or I suppose, you know, founded by people who understand that great ideas need space and time to kind of grow. 
Yeah. Um, but most of the more traditional workplaces, I don't think, tend to have that sort of stuff because I hear a lot of complaints about it still. Oh, there you go. Okay. But you're right. There's something about ways of working and, and you know, setting up some sort of team agreements on how that might play out and, and carving out, you know, days that have no meetings and things like that. Yeah. So I heard, I heard the founder of um, Basecamp, I think it is, talk about that a while ago too. He had some great ideas on how to do those sorts of things. It was oh, okay. meetings and... Yeah, creating more of those times for people. That's so, so you've got big, so many resources. I'm gonna like. Oh, I'm a big writer. Yeah, like, I'm a bit of a. I devour books and podcasts <laughs> and ideas and articles every day, and then always thinking about how can I apply this and what I do. So good. It's so good. Yeah, it's fun. Um, so, and so next. So the R. The R. Yeah. So yeah. the R is the relationships, which is almost back to what we spoke about in that scarf bottle too. That feeling yes. connected, feeling valued. Yeah, having genuinely positive relationships, that belonging piece as well. Um, so I, don't, I think that's probably, we've probably talked about that as well. But the only thing I would add there is that I think one of the gaps that I see a lot is um, the piece around feeling valued. I do see where I do hear a lot of people who don't feel valued just because no one says thank you or no one takes the time to sort of think about the contributions they're making. So that's I think that's one that a lot of people just... I don't know, they kind of just assume that other people feel that way without making the effort to do and that. And it's such a small thing that people can do. Yeah. It's one of those well, things that I say is a small thing, but it makes a huge difference to somebody. Yes. And that's a bit of my, yeah. I guess, one of the things I like to get on my bandwagon about a bit is that those small moments really make a difference to people. And especially if you're a leader, because this is one of the things I think leaders don't realise, not all leaders, obviously, but I suppose the ones that are seeking some development, <laughs> they come because they need a bit of you know, self-awareness or want to become better. Um, they're being, everything they do is watched and noticed, like everything. People Absolutely. notice how they're showing up and the sorts of things they say can have a really big impact in the way they respond. Um, and to your point around the small things, so I can actually share just a little anecdote. A friend of mine, just a really good friend of mine, we had dinner the other night and she's recently moved to a new role and she's dealing with a tricky, she's in HR and she's dealing with a tricky kind of people-related situation. And she was um, stayed back late to deal with it one night and the CEO came to her afterwards and she said, look, this is how I handled this and I hope that's okay because she had to make a bit of a call. And she's fairly new, right? So she was sharing what she'd done and why. And the person said to the CEO, said to her, look, I really value your approach. Thank you so much. I really like your style. Like he said a few really nice things about how she'd handled that and what he, his impressions were her. And she said to me, that made such a difference. She said, I got out, I, I answered really professionally and then I got out into the car and I was like, yes, yes. <laughs> yes. And she said, we were talking about recognition and reward in this conversation, as you do on Friday night dinner with your friends and your psychologist. <laughs> of course <laughs> you said, do, yeah. <laughs> as you do. But she said, this was really telling. She said, he could have said to me, here's a $10,000 bonus and I would have preferred the recognition and the compliment over a $10,000 Handing him ten, handing him ten wow. like that meant more to her than being handed a big chunk of money. So what does people that say could, around? People, it yeah. says people could be saving thousands and probably exactly. millions of well, dollars. And that's, well, that's actually what we were talking about. We were talking about um, the, the, I guess again, some more stuff to point you to. I don't know if you know the fellow who wrote this book called The Love Languages, The Five Love yes, Languages. Yes, I know that one. Yes. Yep. So yep. there's also he's written a book around, or him and a co-author around what he's called the appreciation languages in the yep. workplace, and it's kind of parallel. They did the research to see if it matched up. But one of the key takeaways is that organisations are spending a lot of money on giving people financial monetary rewards, and very few people care about it. 
what they want is a thank you or they want someone to help them out when they're busy or they want, you know, something else that's not money, but that's what organisations throw their money at, their resources at, because it's easy. Exactly. It's so much easier than having conversations for some people, I should say, not for everybody. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. exactly. Exactly. Um, So the M, which you probably would know as well, is meaning, having a sense of purpose and meaning. So that's been pretty a big shift, I suppose, in the world of work. Most people are, well, I hope most people are aware of that, (laughs) but maybe not. Yeah, this one's an interesting one, I think, because um, I think I mentioned it on a different episode, but uh, from the book, have you read um, Michelle Obama's book, Becoming? No, it's on my reading list. I haven't got to it yet. I think you'll love it. Um, But there's a part in the book where she talks about how she was wanting to do something that gave her that meaning in work or gave her Mm -hmm. that purpose Mm -hmm. Uh, and she was talking to her mum about this and they grew up with like little money so you know she wasn't she wasn't living the type of life she's living now Um, and her mum turned around and said to her that's a privileged person's problem Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and so when you're in a position where you are financially stable you feel completely content with, you know, your life in terms of living. Like you can, you know, you come home, you've got the money for food, you know, all those Mm. things. You can pay your bills on time. You've got money left over for entertainment. Um, This is a life of privilege. And so, and it probably relates to that. um, What's that thing called? I've forgotten. um, Yes, yes, yes. Yes, Yes, it probably relates to that because once you've kind of ticked off all the basic human needs, Mm. your need for purpose and for meaning in everyday life like kicks in quite Mm. a bit. And Mm -hmm. so I find um, that, yeah, that meaning um, or that um, purpose-driven work, it's, it's coming now because of how lucky this generation is to be living the way that they have been in terms of like the economy, war situation, you know, like things we've yeah. had it really good. And so that's been heightened to us, I think. Yeah. Um, I think compared to other generations. Yeah. And there's definitely good research showing that younger generations are expecting more of that in their workplace, which is yeah. why, and I was actually having a conversation about this with someone recently, the more old school leaders, if you like, haven't kind of cottoned on to that. So mm. where you've still got older generations of leaders who are leading very young people, there's a bit of a disconnect. And it's, that's a stereotype, right? It's not always mm. like that, of course. But in government, I've seen that quite a bit, actually. Um, so I think there is a bit of that. I think I'm pretty sure I'd have to double check. I'm pretty sure the Maslow stuff's been turned on its ear now. There's a lot of more research that conflicts with that because the I guess there's been more around that human connection and belonging being more important as well. And if you think about um, the studies across the world on who are the happiest communities, some of the poorest communities actually have the happiest people with stronger levels of well-being because they've got connection or they've got a sense of community, those kinds of things, yeah. which is quite interesting as well. But I think you're right because it's still the fundamentals still need to be met. So if you're starving, then you're going to focus on that first, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think the, now, um, the, and I think we could be going a little bit deep into this, but it's to be interesting. Yes. <laughs> um, but like the connection and belonging, I feel, is still different to the meaning and the purpose. Oh, it is. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So I Absolutely. feel like you could go into work and 
feel fully connected with your team, love everyone you work yes. with, but people could still feel disconnected to the purpose That's or right. the meaning yes. of what they do. So, yeah, it's super yeah. interesting. Um, well, and it's interesting end. too because people have a different, what, what is meaning and purpose to one person could be completely different to someone else even though they're doing the same job. Yeah. So, And yeah. there's classic stories exactly. around this when you read the literature about, you know, the guy who was cleaning the floor at a hospital, say, and one person would say, you know, he's cleaning the floor and someone else might say he's making the environment nice. And for him, it might be that he's creating a healthy environment so patients can recover and, you know, go home safely. Like, and yeah. that's him into the bigger purpose of what he's doing. Yeah. Um, I think yeah, there was like I a famous, there was a famous um, example from NASA. I can't remember yes. which president it was, but there was literally a cleaner um, cleaning away. And the I think the man came over and said, like, oh, what do you, like, what do, you do? And he's like, I'm helping um, take someone to the moon. So, like, that yes. real strong connection yes. to purpose. Yes. Well, that's it. And if you put it back into a work environment, like having conversations, again, with people in your team, say, or even, you know, team members having those conversations with each other to figure out, how whatever they're doing is contributing to each person's individual sense of meaning and purpose can be so valuable because it helps yeah. you to understand who can play what role, you know, how you can communicate about things for a leader, like what is it that you can do to then help that person feel more motivated or value? How often do you need to help them connect back to the bigger purpose? Like, yeah, it's really interesting. I do think from my experience that there are some people for whom a job is a job they, they just want to go to work and do their job and go home. But usually yeah. if you speak with those people, it's because their greater sense of meaning and purpose in their lives is just outside of work. So they'll have hobbies or they'll have family, really strong family connections or drivers there. So they come to work, they want to go home safely and spend time with their family because that's what matters most to them. Yeah. It's so, like their, their money is funding their yes. purpose. Yes. Yeah. And they yeah. often and that's, have other and that's things okay on the too. side. Yeah. 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 Well, and that's a really interesting thing to say that's okay too, because a lot of like a lot of people will think that they have to find that meaning in someone's work and then they finally have that conversation. And it's okay just yeah, for that to be okay. I did had these conversations last year. I was running some career conversations training and the first kind of step of the process, if you like, was understanding the person. And the second one was a little bit more about understanding their why and their purpose and their bigger dreams. And we had that very conversation that sometimes people don't have a big big career goal or a big aspiration about who they want to be in 10 years or whatever it is. It's yeah. more just figuring out what matters most to them. And if you know that work-life balance really matters most to them because they've got these outside pieces of their life that are most important for them and their well-being, then as a manager or a leader, then you help them to create that work-life balance and you've made yeah. that person happy and they're feeling fulfilled. Absolutely. You, know, you have think, to generate a career goal for them if that's not what they want. Yeah. I think a lot of I think a lot of it comes from like the pressure in society and the culture of mm. finding purpose, finding meaning. I think a lot mm. of that plays into making people feel like they have to have something when yes. it's okay not to. No. I know those people happy, feel that right? pressure as well. Yeah. yeah as long as they're happy. And and those things change over life, I think, as well. When you go through different stages of life, what matters to you most will change as well. Oh, and that's okay sure. as well. Yeah, for mm. sure. Um, so the last one, A. Yeah, the A is accomplishment. So uh, which fits yes. with, if you look at the Daniel Pink model, which is autonomy, mastery and purpose, it fits with the um, mastery piece. So really just most people are quite driven by a sense of being able to work towards something and achieve something and get better at whatever it is that they're doing. So it doesn't have to be a big goal again, but that sense of, yeah, Just being able to do your work. Yeah, well, 
Well, it might be, yeah, and it might be just being able to achieve your daily tasks sort of thing and feel like you can accomplish that. Or it might be that you're working towards some big goal. But if you imagine, again, not being able to do that, so when you have, you know, just goals that you can't reach or even your daily expectations on you, you just can't ever possibly do it because there's not enough time or resources, people tend to have lower well-being. They start to feel stressed and overwhelmed and all of those sorts of negative emotions again. Oh, you had so much to add to that health and well-being yeah. um, topic. <laughs> Well, it's funny because most people focus on resilience, I guess, and that's where it's interesting because there's there's been like I watch. I'm not someone who goes in and teaches resilience, if you like. So I would talk about those sorts of models, but there's a whole extra sort of science, I guess, around resilience. But I think when people talk about well-being, a lot of organisations they say we need to have resilience training, and I think in most of the cases I've come across, that is not the answer. It's not about making your people more resilient. In some industry, it's obviously that does matter if they're facing a lot of challenges because of the nature of their role. But when there's an environment where there's, you know, something's become a bit toxic or the culture is really compromised or there's lots of people feeling unhappy, giving people resilience training is not usually the answer. I think usually the answer is stepping back and looking at what's going on in the environment that's making them feel that way in the first place. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And also I feel like with resilience training, it's not an overnight thing. So you need to train yourself up to become resilient. It's not like I'm going to get a resilience training and then next week I'm going to be resilient. No, so they need to think about that through experience and hardships and yeah, yeah, absolutely. And some people have just got more of it because they just do, and yeah, others have just gone through things that help build it up over time. It's yeah, not the answer a lot of the time. (laughs) Yeah, and so the other the other ones I had, and I feel like maybe you have answered them because you've discussed um, a lot of the other models as well. So feel free to add or not add. Um, mm-hmm. but the other ones I had were around uh, motivating the workforce and improving performance. Mm. So an example of that would be, let's talk about the change one. If there has been a huge restructure and a lot of redundancies and people are left feeling completely unmotivated, um, performance mm-hmm. drops, what what are the things that leaders or um, not even leaders, just individual contributors can do in those situations to help improve performance and also um, motivation levels of motivation. their team? It's funny actually because motivation feeds into performance in my view, I guess. Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so obviously because – and it's – so one of the really basic things that I've always done, and I don't do as much of this these days, a little bit, but um, as an org psych, I guess, is that almost around capability and performance, like, you know, organisations want to know how do I help my people succeed? And a lot of the work that organisational psychs will do is we often call it something like success profiling or capability frameworks or something like that. If you call it success profiling, it's a bit broader, but it's sort of like what are the ingredients that lead to success for yeah. an individual? So take out the environment piece, right, because that let's just look at the person. Um, And to me, all of the bits that go into that are things like skills and capabilities, which we would often talk about as the can do, like you have to be able to do something. Um, You might have experience or knowledge, like sometimes that feeds in, sometimes it's not as important, but what they've done in the past, you know, might help them to have the experience to handle something now. 
Um, and then there's the motivation and kind of attitude piece, if you like, the mindset and the, yeah. So the will do. So we often, I remember teaching this really early on in my career. Yeah. You've got sort of can do and want to do will be the will do. Sorry, so I said that the wrong way around. So oh, the will yeah. do. If you want to know if somebody will do something or they're more likely to do something and try and predict that, then you need to know if they can do it and then you need to know if they want to do it because you can have the capability and the skill and the experience say, but no motivation. And so they won't perform because they just don't want to, or at least not at their optimum level. And then you can also have the motivation without the skill where people really, really are geared up and really driven to, you know, deliver a certain outcome or perform in a certain role, but they don't actually have the skill and the know-how yet. So they need to develop that. Um, so back to your question though, around improving performance, if we touch on that first, I think you do have to understand things around motivation and engagement and know if people are in that right space to be able to perform at their best. I think the strengths piece that we talked about before can really come in as well, because there's really clear links between using your strengths and then performing more effectively. So for a leader, say, or, or someone who's managing a bigger group of people, it can be really helpful to think about who's doing what work in terms of how are they best leveraging their strengths, their capabilities, the things they want to do. So how do you divvy up the work? How do you structure the team? That kind of thing. Rather than just assuming, you know, here's a role and here's what, what accountabilities you have and here's another role. Sometimes you could get those people together and they could work through all of the collective responsibilities and outcomes that the team's trying to create and then actually figure out, well, I don't really like doing this, but you do, and you're really great at that. So how about you do that part and I'll do this part? Yeah. You know, stepping back and looking at it from that perspective, I guess. Um, is that like that job, job crafting. Yes, that's job crafting. Yes, yeah. you've heard of job crafting. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah, and yeah, I funny really, really talk, love that. Yeah, that isn't it fascinating? Yes, and often if you were to say, if you went and spoke to, say, a leader around allowing their teams to craft their roles, what you often get is pushback, right? That, oh, I can't let them choose what they do. Like, well, that sounds a bit, you know, a bit scary. But this is what I always say to them. Think about the last time you hired somebody, somebody left the team and you had to, say, rewrite their position description or whatever it was to kind of rehire or work out what you needed for the role. And quite often what you'll find is that that person, the way that they've been doing the job, they've been job crafting the whole time because whatever the role originally looked like, they've changed it up and made it their own and they're delivering it in a certain way and added bits and things have changed. And so essentially people craft their own roles anyway. Yeah, <laughs> so. exactly. It's as long as, as long as they know what they need to deliver, they can That's do right. it in yes. any way they want to make that happen. Yes. Yeah, and sometimes people put a little bit more into certain parts because that's what they love. But yeah, as long as it's still aligning with what the organisation needs, you know, the team needs, then that's that's fine. Exactly. Um, so job crafting is actually a really good, a really good improving performance strategy. Actually, just stepping back and that's why there's a lot of work around strengths and that kind of thing. And when I'm working with, say, a, a team or a leader who wants to think about what they need in a certain role for their team. I'll often get them to step back and look at the collective group, you know, what have I got and what do I need and where is, how is this person going to complement the other strengths in the team and the other sort of skills and attributes we have, or even yourself, like, here's what I know I'm good at. I'm not good at this. So how can I get somebody who will be good at that? Yeah. So, you know, from a performance perspective, I think there's too much looking sometimes at individual rather than the collective, if you like, in terms of what you're trying to achieve. So that's not such a good point. Those, I don't think many people would do that now that I think well, about it. Yeah, and even yeah, then organisationally. On an individual versus what does a team have as yes. a whole and what's missing. Yes, mm -hmm. well, and the individuals quite often would 
because it's not encouraged, would be focusing on their own delivery a lot of the time as well. When if you actually step back and look at how we're all working together and how we're more interconnected, then that can really change the dynamic. And that's what makes a great team, right, is that everybody has clarity around what everybody's doing, what everybody needs to deliver, how we all play a role, how all our work interconnects with one another, um, as well as obviously all those constructs around things like psychological safety and trust and all of those pieces that play in as well. Yeah. So that's probably another piece around performance that's a bigger topic these days is psychological safety and trust, which comes back to that oh, human so stuff important. again, right? It is. It is back to yeah. that human stuff. Um, well, whilst you were talking, I was thinking about um, which ties into the, this last question um, around changing mindsets. Mm. Um, and so even I, I've got here, a, you know, an example could be when leaders have to change their mindset of if I can see the person, I know that they're delivering work. If they're working from mm. home, I don't know if I can trust them. Um, and I think this would tie into the human stuff just based on a lot of what you've been talking about. But what are your tips on how you would change the mindset of someone who is used to working in a certain way uh, and then things are changing and their team's no longer directly in front mm. of them? Mm-hmm. How would you help them have those aha moments or at least get them to a, to a point where they trust their team no matter where they are? Mm, in that particular sort of scenario. Mm. I'm sort of thinking more broadly about that question actually around changing mindsets because I feel like a lot of my work ends up being about that. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah, and it doesn't have to be that specific example. But yeah, but I think but I could apply it to that. Mindset. Yeah. Well, and I think the trust piece is the ultimate question there, right? The trust piece. Um, so this is probably where a lot of my work, this is how things have just evolved, I think, over the last few years, is around, I mean, you're, to, you're calling it changing mindsets, but it's almost like self-awareness to me as well. That's the first part. So I work, I've ended up working, so my business has just evolved where I've ended up niching into these particular areas without really meaning to. It's just kind of ended up there. And I've realised... Probably because you love it as well. <laughs> well, and I think it's because I get, you know, people talk about what I've done and then I get another referral or oh, something. Yeah. It just ends up being, I don't know, it's like the same problems, if you like, or challenges that people are trying to overcome, whether that's teams or organisations or individuals, end up coming to me. And I'm never quite sure why <laughs> or yeah. how. And, but I think it's because, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, so one of them... The piece that I find myself working a lot on, especially with individuals, because that's where you really have scope, is self-awareness. And when I say self-awareness, and it sort of fits into that mindset and attitudes, it's figuring out like what is going on within me to make me respond in that way. So in your example, if I feel a sense of distrust around people working at home or I'm not letting them, and that's that's not working for that person, right? That's usually why they're getting some help or they've been undertaking some coaching or whatever you know, what is it that's going on internally around my patterns of thinking, my patterns of feeling, my patterns of behaviour, what's triggering that, what's leading to that, what am I then doing as a result? So it's almost coming back to your standard psych stuff, I suppose, around where we talk about the ABC model, which is the antecedent, so the trigger, the behaviour that you demonstrate, and then the consequences after that. Um, so yeah, trying to figure out what what is happening there. So I've done a lot of work with people where I'm helping them to kind of figure out their triggers, almost like you know, because they know they're doing something that's not working for them or they're thinking a certain way that's not working for them. So what is it that's like provoking that thought or that, does that make sense? Yeah, in the first place. So it's almost just, 
it's building awareness and building mindfulness, but I don't often use that word because some leaders don't like the whole mindfulness concept. <laughs> Sometimes we call it um, focused attention. <laughs> That's a nice corporate way to put it, really, like learning what's going on in yourself yeah. so that you can then create that little space that you need to put in between whatever it is that triggers off something that goes on in yourself that then leads you to respond in a certain way, to say no or to whatever it might be, give, you know, jump in, interrupt or give whatever it is that the behaviour is that the person's trying to stop. So to me, that self-awareness piece, that understanding, what is it about you? And it might come back to values, like we talked about earlier. It might come back to some of those drivers, you know, yeah. if, I, if I'm triggered off by, you know, a particular driver that means that, no, I'm not going to let that person do that because I need to cling on to this thing that's important to me. Yeah. <laughs> whatever it is, uncovering that first of all, and then thinking about, well, how can you, you know, try a few different things? Is that making sense? Yeah, definitely. Would you also, um, with the, with that person, or that, um, if they understand their trigger, would you also kind of take them through that ABC that you talked about? So yeah, I don't often like use scenario or not really? Yeah, I don't, well, I don't often use that particular, yeah, sometimes because I guess I'm, I'm always linking it through to the kind of, it's almost like linking it to, yeah, the trigger. That's probably a different way to put it is the trigger, the behaviour that you're doing that's not working for you, but also the why yeah. it's not working for you because, you know, yeah. if they don't think it's not working, then they're not going to change it, are they? Um, and the, so the consequences in that sense and then what could you try differently? So the other thing I often do is help people just experiment with like little tweaks and little... Because to me, changing mindsets is really hard. So trying to just get someone to think about something completely different doesn't always work. They almost need to experience it. And once they've experienced it, then they start to see the value or they start to not feel fearful of what would happen if they didn't do that initial thing to begin with. Yeah. So there's another great model, sorry, all about models, <laughs> called <laughs> immunity to change, which is actually, it's about understanding like I know, so I know I need to do something differently because this is not working for me. And here's the behavior I need to do. But here's all the opposite behaviours that I'm doing all the time anyway. So you look at that list of opposite behaviours and you start to dig around and challenge what are the assumptions underlying that. So, for example, someone who micromanages, often they'll give you a whole list of things they're doing to micromanage and they know they shouldn't be doing them, but you explore, well, what's, what's really sitting underneath your, your behaviours here in terms of what you're actually afraid of, for example. And you don't say it so overtly, right, because then they get upset that you're being too psychology-like with them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've had, don't do all that psychology stuff on me. <laughs> so you come about it in a different way. But you're digging in to figure out what's actually like the narrative in someone's head in that example, for example, in your example, if I don't see them here and working, then I'm actually afraid that they're not doing their jobs properly and then I will look bad to my boss or I'm actually afraid that I won't be able to deliver. What is it that you're actually afraid of? So there's almost like an assumption at play mm. and then you help them to find almost like an experiment, if you like, to challenge the assumptions. So they might go, okay, I'm going to give that person a bit of leeway for this day and then I'm going to, you know, test my thinking. Did they really not do their job or if it was someone who you're micromanaging, did they, did they stuff it up like I thought? And then you discover that that didn't happen and you think, oh, okay, I could try that. So it's almost, yeah, behavioural like experiment. Yeah, I so like the little. I like the idea of short-term experiments because yes. it doesn't feel like it's permanent. Things are completely changing. It's like we're just testing it out, and let's see what happens. Oh, that's massive in in my experience. I guess like trying to create behavioural change, which is often what we're trying to create. You know, yeah, yeah. Small, the smaller, the more manageable, and there's yeah, because 
if people don't feel authentic in whatever they're trying. So it has to be authentic. It has to feel like they, they can do it. You know, it's the smallest thing that they can bite off, for example. Yeah. Um, it has to feel just something that, yeah, just that they're comfortable doing. There's a whole lot of reasons, I guess, that people resist trying all these things. So making sure that that really fits. So a lot of coaches do this when they talk about actions or something somebody's going to do and they'll ask, like, how committed are you on a scale of one to ten to doing this? And if it's like a below eight, not, not doing it, let's move on and find a different strategy. Yeah, that's a good And so, I, I mean, I can give you an example that. of, um, sorry, I'm just conscious of time, but I can give you an example of changing a mindset that, to put it really briefly, I had a, a coaching client who did a lot of telling, a lot of controlling, although had a lot of feedback about interfering, always trying to put their finger in the pie, that kind of thing, um, and went through a process where they did realise that they needed to change, right, because it wasn't working for them anymore, but didn't really know how. And the very first thing that this person did that we sort of agreed on as a strategy was just shut up in a meeting, just shut up in meetings, basically, when other yeah. people were talking just be quiet and just let it play out and just resist that urge to kind of jump in. And I can still remember after they did it, that the next time I spoke to them, they were saying to me, Oh my goodness, I can't believe how it worked out. I just said nothing. And I just said nothing. And then they all looked at me because they were waiting for me to say something. And so I just, I held it and I said nothing and I couldn't believe it that they came to the solution by themselves and it took them a while to get there, but they still came to this and like they were flabbergasted, right? At how they could say nothing as, as someone who was more senior and more experienced in this space and the people in that conversation still just worked it out for themselves. Yeah. And I it was such that. an aha moment of like, it was, it was experimenting, it was trying something new and then going, Oh, this can work when really they just never tried that before. They'd exactly. always just felt like they had to jump in and, you know, save the day kind of thing. Yes. That's so, a, yeah. yeah, I love that. Um, I try to do that as well. I tried to, position things as experiments so it's okay mm -hmm. if it doesn't work it's just an experiment and I move on to the next experiment and it's all yeah good. that's right I think um, that's what a lot of life is about actually <laughs> oh that's so that is so true um another question that is while we're talking about meetings mm -hmm. um I was curious about the um non-verbal cues and signals um, mm. in a meeting or in a workplace like if I think about an example to bring it to life a little bit more if you're on a project um, which involves a lot of negotiation as an example mm. and it's like a high profile project what what are the things that you think are important to look out for that are non-verbal mm. in, in a negotiation example yeah it's funny negotiation, actually. You mean just negotiation in a more informal way? Like there's people trying to come to agreement on something? Yeah. Because in actual workplace negotiations where there's people who are good at that, they learn all the tricks and tips. Oh, <laughs> so okay. Yeah. Oh, Do you yeah, know like all you. those tips and tricks too? Oh, <laughs> I think nonverbal stuff is really interesting because actually I had a client ask me about some of this. They were looking for nonverbal signals when they were trying to assess founders actually that was a venture capital firm and they were trying to assess mm -hmm. founders and whether the founders were the right people and whether they had what it takes and we talked about this because the interesting thing about non-verbals is you can read them really wrong like it's oh. not perfect it's never perfect you could read the best thing especially to if you're not about, an expert no just, that's right but even yeah. the experts like i don't think can always be right so a great example is that you know people would say if someone's crossing their arms they're cranky but sometimes people are just cold right or hugging themselves <laughs> for comfort you're hugging themselves for comfort yeah so i think the key is looking for changes so where you Ooh. see a change in nonverbal behavior so if you imagine sitting across from someone and you're talking about something 
and then they visibly shift or their face changes. When you look for the changes, that's usually where something has gone on in their mind that, you know, is being, yeah. they call it leakage. They call it in psychology Ooh, terms. Leakage. leakage. It's leaking out through our nonverbal because you've probably seen all that stuff around nonverbal signals having much more strength, really. Like there's more truth in the nonverbal than the verbal yes. a lot of the time. And so it can include facial expressions you know we've talked a lot about micro expressions like you see a fleeting change but you have to be really watching to see those sorts of things posture tone the voice you know they're yes. all the non-verbal sort of things that you see in people so how they're holding their body the way they yeah the tone less about the language yeah so I, think I like that i think that's important because in in, yeah. in a meeting where things are just like going 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 you're not actually conscious of those of those changes all of a sudden no. the meeting's finished and you just didn't expect it to go how it did but if you're mindful yeah. of that the changes in tone their expression facial yes. expression how they're sitting i think that's a really good one to look out for yeah okay. and i think it's funny it's a funny question because it's one of the things that we get trained to do like when you do coach training for example or you are a coach and do a lot of that so much of it is observation and actually a lot of my training as a psych and or as an org psych and a lot of what we do we do a lot of assessment of people in say group scenarios so they're hiring or they're trying to work out who's got the best leadership capability and they'll do role plays and things like that where you're watching people you're just watching them the whole time so we sit there with our clipboards <laughs> so you're basically observing and noticing yeah yeah you really do do a lot of that and i suppose even in counseling because I've done a fair bit of counselling as well, you know, you really are picking up those cues and you notice something and then you go a bit deeper because you've noticed something. Yeah. So we're almost, and I forget that. I do, one of the things I feel quite strongly about is that a lot of leaders in particular, and I focus on leaders because they have such big impact in work environments, is they're not trained to do these things. They're not trained how to listen most of the time, how to ask really good questions, how to dig beyond, you know, the surface level of what they get, how to look for those cues, because it's just not something often they're experts who've come up into a leadership position and they've got some technical knowledge. They just don't get trained in that. And it's easy when you do a role like mine and all the other psychs, I suppose, to forget that because we do get trained. Like I did lifeline counselling and I did seven months of training on just listening and empathising and reflecting and that's it. Yeah, And helping people to name their emotions, just like those really basic fundamental things. Yeah, it's yeah. because, you know, it's so second nature to you now that you forget it's a skill because mm, it's just part I mean. of, yeah, it's just part of who you are now. Um, yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah. And I think people who are good at it actually take it for granted too. They don't realise. So they might be those leaders that you know. That are, and if you reflect on the great leaders you've had, quite often yeah. you look back and realise that's the sort of things they were doing. You felt heard, yes. you felt valued, you felt appreciated because they would be listening and paraphrasing or reflecting or asking great questions to go deeper or whatever it was. That's so true. So, yeah. So the nonverbal stuff, I think what, cause I do help people to think this through. I just tell them to watch, just watch, start observing, notice if someone notice shifts changes. or what happens and what was just said or what happened. And, you know, and if you combine that with stuff like the scarf model <laughs> or some oh, way of yeah. thinking about what's driving people, you start to really build a bit of a hypothesis. And I would say hypotheses because I don't think you really know. It's just a hypothesis that you can think, oh, they reacted like that. So next time I'll try this instead and see what reaction I get. Mm, that's so good. Mm. So shifting gears a little bit to some more personal mm -hmm. questions. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, I would love to know what has been one of your biggest challenges um, and how you are working towards overcoming it. 
or how are you tackling it? And the reason I always ask this question is just in case someone who is listening is going through something similar, it's good for mm. people to hear what others are going through and how they're tackling certain things. Yeah. I think I would have to say, you mean just as an individual in my professional world, probably my personal yes. world as well, actually. Well, if they're, um, linked, if they're linked for sure. Yeah, yeah, I think they are linked. I think it's mm. probably been around kind of putting myself out there. I guess that whole imposter syndrome but it's mixed in for me with, like I am someone who's always been uncomfortable with conflict. This is why it sort of feeds into my work, right? Because I see the importance of this in workplace and I've experienced some of that. So yeah, two, probably two things. So I guess that whole imposter thing for me has always been an issue. I've always felt like I do this work and I've learned lots of things, but if I go out and say something too bold or I say something that's going to, you know, I'm quite confident, right, one-on-one. So I could be sitting with a group or a team or a leader and I'll be, people say to me, you're so passionate. You're obviously so passionate about your work. But when it comes to something like posting on LinkedIn about it, I would think, oh, everybody's going to see it. What might they think? And they might not agree with me and then what would they think? So that kind of like wanting people to like you sort of thing has yeah. probably been one that i have to I've say, to... I didn't see you. I wouldn't have picked that as yours. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. it could be because I've been working on it, Sherry. It could be oh, that. Good, I have very good. Actually, <laughs> oh, and that's that's probably the other part of the question is how, like, how to overcome that. I've been, look, I've had my own coach, my own mentors. I've got yeah. lots of informal mentors I suppose but I have been working with a coach for a while and I see a psychologist myself sometimes you know when some of the family work everything else stuff has become a bit much I get a bit of help because that outsider perspective is always really great yeah um, I think we all have to have a bit of a support network so you know I've got great friends as well yeah <laughs> so yeah I've been working on that I think one of the things I'm very very influenced by Brené Brown's work around getting in the arena and putting yourself out there and so there's been a lot of, I guess, a journey over the last year and a half to think about, yeah, how do I put myself out there and do my own little experiments and do what I'm afraid of and then see what happens. And so to give you an example, I've become a lot more comfortable with things like just talking about things on LinkedIn because I've realised through that journey that I really love my work. I can't make a difference if people don't know what I do. Exactly. (laughs) You know, you have to be able to let people know that you do it somehow or you can't get in there and, and, you know, make that difference I suppose sometimes that means putting yourself out there so there was a period last year where I for example did my first LinkedIn video and was terrified of how it would go and just thought no I'm just going to do it and just do it and see what happens and I'm not worried I'm just I was really (laughs) but it went really well and I got really great feedback and that made me go oh so nothing bad happened okay I can do that again I saw that video did you (laughs) yeah it was really good and I think you're um I really like that you mentioned Brene Brown and how she says um you know that whole thing about being in the arena and the thing is like when you get you know for instance there's like keyboard warriors out there and like people Mm. are afraid of getting that negative feedback but one thing that Brene Brown says is that if they're not in the arena who cares what they say they haven't experienced anything of what you are doing so yeah and that's listening to people like that it's just a waste no I mean it's harder to say um than to experience and go through it but I that that's a huge reminder for me it's like well you know you have no idea of what I'm doing or what I'm going through or how I'm putting myself Mm. out there so well, that's it, and you're not, you. and you're not doing that. And that actually was a period for me where I went through that because when I was working with my coach, and I was, she was encouraging me to be more out there, and I felt that fear, mostly of people that you know, right? It's the people that you know. It's not the strangers behind the keyboards. For me, it was 
friends, family, like what would they think? What would they say? And then I had to sort of just yeah, learn so to real. accept that, you know, yeah, like, if, you know, then, yeah, I, I mean, I'm going to always care about them, but I'm doing what I'm doing because I've got a purpose and I know that it's really authentic and that's just exactly. it. So, yeah. Exactly. So that's, that's a really good one to share. Thanks for well, sharing and I that. Think, oh, that's all right. And I think um, feeding into that, I think to say how I'm tackling all this stuff is actually kind of practising what I'm preaching. I do a lot of like the noticing and you know what's going on in my mind and what story am I telling myself and how is that making me respond and you know so things like journaling and working with my own sort of set of people if you like to figure that out that's brought a lot of self-awareness around that and not just professionally but also personally so there's been a bit of stuff over the last few years with personal family life that has made me have to have a lot of difficult conversations and have to face into a lot of tricky things yeah so you know it almost just creates or like we were saying before that resilience in the sense that you have to figure out how to get through it there's no choice yes, and so exactly you, you you can learn from that along the way or you can not you know exactly so I've tried to choice. make sure that i've grown from that yeah along the way Love so there it. you go so when you do see me posting and being out there that is me being courageous sometimes there is that yeah. bit of me going oh if i say this what will people think <laughs> no good on you and just keep just keep going it's great yeah i love all your content yeah <laughs> Um, and the second question is, what are you really proud of and why? Probably that, actually. That's a tricky question. Um, probably that. I think um, I've always been someone who's fairly confident in myself in the sense that I can figure out how to get through something. Like if I'm doing something new, I can figure that out. Um, so I don't know. I think I'm proud of the journey. I've been on my delivering work. So I sometimes deliver directly to clients, but I've delivered with other firms and things as well. But that has been a real journey over that time to just know that I can continue doing that. It's been five and a half years now. So I'm probably proud of just, you know, taking, my, taking myself on that big leap where I jumped out of that company that didn't feel right anymore and not knowing what was going to happen. And yeah. five years later, still going well, going better than I ever could have thought, I suppose. Um, but it has taken, you know, a lot of work <laughs> along yeah, the way. That's definitely something you should be proud of because it's it's so many things are uncertain when you move from a safety oh. net like a company and go out there and do your own thing. So yes. good on you for backing yourself. Well, that's great accomplishment. You. Yeah. And this last year part of that journey has been figuring out where I want to spend my time and energy and work. So what am I? Because I like lots of things and I read lots of things and I've done lots of things because it can be quite broad, especially when you work in consulting, you're kind of doing all sorts of stuff. So getting really clear and spending the time to figure out that and to try the things and say, well, I don't think that's what I want to do forever. And what about this? And so I feel like that took a lot of mental energy. <laughs> so yes. it's nice to have kind of worked that out, I guess. Oh, yeah, you're right. It does take a lot of energy. I feel like I've been through a little bit of that as well. Yeah, Just I can imagine. working through different, you know, different things that you enjoy, you don't like. Um, yeah, it's it's. And I think it's an try. ongoing journey. It's an ongoing yeah. journey, right? But it comes back to that being courageous, I guess, and putting yourself in the arena. Because if you don't try it, then you'll never know. So that's exactly. definitely my philosophy at the moment. Dare greatly, Renee Brown style. Love it. <laughs> yeah, love it. Um, okay, so now we're going into the fast five questions. Okay. I'm really excited about. So, all right, let's kick off. What are some of the little things you've implemented in life or in work that have led to significant positive changes? Hmm. I reckon the biggest thing, and I kind of knew this intuitively, but it was my coach who helped me to see this, is space, like creating pockets of space in my day and my week and my whatever 
because I am one of those people who just goes and goes and goes and always feels like I have to be doing something and achieving something and ticking off the boxes. And I have learned that stepping back and just creating space actually leads to better results. So, so, so the way I actually do that a lot of the time is things like when I'm driving my car somewhere, instead of listening to a podcast or an audiobook, <laughs> which is yeah. why I'm behind, I'll just sit there and just let my mind tick over that kind of thing. Wow. Or, yeah. Just creating pockets of space. Does that make sense? Yes. Because it. I'm like you where I like to oh, yeah. be like content, content, content anytime. It's I'm not really doing hard. Content. It's such a hard practice to put in. And for me, and so I think, cause people talk a lot about mind, like I try for years to have a mindfulness practice, like a proper formal sit down, do some mindfulness meditation for a certain amount of time. And it actually just didn't work because I've got two kids run a business, you know, Got it, like many other people, I'm a wife and I'm running the house and all those things, and I couldn't find time for it. So eventually, I gave up on trying to do that in a formal set time and just started trying to find like moments here and there. Yeah. So be mindful with your kids, or be mindful when you're driving, or go to the gym, or something like that, and that worked. And so I find I that like always it. interesting to share because people think it has to be some formal structured thing, and it really doesn't. Yeah. And the, 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 I mean, the benefit is that you you start to figure out what's going on for you because you're creating a little bit of time for that. Yeah, and you're becoming more aware of your thoughts. Yeah, yeah. And actually, I've also found, here's one thing I've learned about myself is that when I'm, because I'm designing a lot of content to run with workshops and things like that, mm-hmm. I am way better if I have what I call incubation time. So one of my new processes is I'll map out what I think is going to be, say, a session plan, and then I just let it sit. So as long as I can give to just let it sit, because what happens is it swims around in my mind, and then I think, oh, I could do this, oh, I could do that, and I write it down and capture it. And then I come back, Love and it's way better. Time. So being rushed into designing a solution is not the best for me if they want the best outcome. So I tell clients that really openly (laughs) as well. Yeah, I really, really like that. That's a good one. Mm. Um, Next question. Who are your heroes and why? I'd have to say Brene Brown. These can be everyday people. Oh, Brene Brown. I'd have to say Brene Brown, big hero. I was rambling about this at my social catch-ups over the weekend as well. Because I think something, I think with someone like Brene Brown, it's like if, if, you, if it comes to you at the time in your life where it's really relevant, then it really makes a difference. Whereas I know people who may have come across some of her material and content, it doesn't really resonate. And I have a friend who I think needs some Brene Brown. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, to me, I really, I think she's a hero for me because I really admire her courage in how she is sharing all this research, I suppose, and this thing that she's done professionally, but then she's had the journey along the way of experiencing it and then she weaves that in through all of her stories. So I love her authenticity and her frankness and her funny, humorous way about sharing some of these stories mm. sometimes. So she's Me too. It takes a lot of yeah. guts to share your personal life with the world. Yeah, it does. It does. Um, I'm not sure if I could say who my people I admire. I there's probably a few, like, for example, I've just started reading the second book by Michael Bungay-Sainer, who wrote The Coaching Habit, and he's written The Advice, I think it's called The Advice Habit as well, he calls it. The, so what I admire about him, though, is he's really making something that people feel is hard really accessible in terms of how they learn to be better at coaching or, as he says it, staying curious and not not rushing to giving advice. So back to our stuff around leaders and conversations and all of these things. So, oh, I like I that I, one. Is that called The Advice Habit, the book? Yeah, I think it's The Advice Trap. That's brand new. Oh, I've just started true. reading. I've just read through half of it on the weekend and I'm like itching to go out and apply it all. It to people. <laughs> and apply it all, yes. <laughs> and it makes a sense to people like us who've thought about a lot of that, but it's very accessible. So, so I think yeah. 
of what I'm finding as I think more about actually who I enjoy reading. And it's sort of like people who, and this is one of the philosophies, I guess, when I think about who I want to be, who can be, can be bold and like challenge people's thinking, but do it in a really constructive, here's how I can help way as compared to people who are just provocative and make you feel bad about yourself. Do you know what I mean? That difference between, yep, here's how you exactly can think differently and let me give you some tools versus here's how you're doing the wrong thing and bad you. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. Would, would, you I say, like would you say that's one of your favourite books or we haven't gone through that? Well, I've only halfway though. through it, but so far I'm loving it. So far, yeah. yes. Shared a post about it the other day. Um, yeah, because I'm loving the way he presents the information and just makes people really think. I think that's, that's why I see him as someone I aspire to. In that sense. Okay. Um, mm. And so any other favourite book, podcast, TED Talks? That's the next oh, I listen to so many. Um, I think my staples are, I've always listened to Michelle McQuaid's Making, Making Positive Psychology Work, I think it's called. So that's a positive psychology bench. She interviews lots of researchers and that's always been what then takes me down a, another research path. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, I actually listen to the HBR Ideacast really regularly as well because they do a lot of stuff around leadership and self, if you like. Um, awesome. But so, so many, uh, Adam Grant's podcast, Amantha Imbers, I just listen to heaps. <laughs> so uh, it sounds like a lot of it is around psychology. Yeah, oh, yeah. So I'm you a go psychology deep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I read psychology books for fun on my holidays and my weekends. And I That's so good, that though. <laughs> it's so good that you love it that much. It's amazing. I love, like, it's so good. Um, second, uh, second last question, pet peeve. What's your pet peeve? Pet peeve. My pet peeve. So this doesn't have to be work related, right? It could be anything. Nah. Anything. My pet peeve is when you go to a hotel or a place that you're staying and you go to have a shower and there's no like screen around the shower and all the water <laughs> just falls on the floor. That is my pet peeve. I, when I thought about that's like totally what first comes to mind because I just don't understand why anyone wants to stand in a pool of water in their bathroom. <laughs> That's such a fun one. I love it. And that. I, I experienced it way back on like a trip to Vietnam where the toilet would be under the shower. And so you get like the toilet would get, you know, anyway, still that's, a pet peeve. so gross. Yeah. I just don't, I know. I just don't get why people would build it that way. I don't get it. <laughs> and then the last one is if you were on death row, what would be your final meal? Oh, <laughs> a hard one. So here, that's a funny question because I eat low carb because that works for me. But really I would not if it if I could stay healthy and feel good all the time. Um, yeah, so this I is if you had like, no consequences. I know, no consequences. Yeah, something like a really nice gnocchi with a creamy pasta or pasta sauce or something like that. Actually, my latest thing, my little special treat is Hague's chocolates. I love Hague's chocolates. Ooh, it's like yum. the best chocolate in the world. So when I do have good. a treat, it's like just a few of those really nice Hague's chocolates. So I reckon I just eat enough to make myself sick and it wouldn't matter. <laughs> And it wouldn't matter. <laughs> Love it. Such a good one. Well, thank you so much for your time and all the all information right. you have shared. Like, there's so many great insightful nuggets in this. Um, and I'm really I excited feel like to write I threw about a lot of models at you. <laughs> all the models, but it's great because it's a good way of remembering certain things as well, certain concepts. Mm. So, no, it was really good. Thank you. No, no problem. It's been fun. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode of Behind the Bee Box. 
my journey with Brainy Box has inspired me to share what I've learned from others with you in the hope it makes a positive difference to your life, business, or workplace. Your feedback and love is what keeps me going. So please follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn at Brainy Box or connect with me on LinkedIn at Sherry Amami. If you haven't yet, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Have a wonderful week and I'll speak to you soon.